Freedom Hut. The full George Floyd arrest video is out. Some BLM racketeering underway in Kentucky. Sweden sees no point in mask wearing. Biden's VP pick is imminent and is time running out on TikTok. Buck Sexton. Permission decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. One Make no mistake. America. You're a great American again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. I think I can speak for three hours without a phone call. Try doing that sometime. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome, my friends, to the Buck Sexton Show, where I'm currently uh, broadcasting from the midst of a a tropical storm, I think, or some it's some weather event here. We've got crazy gusts of winds. It sounds like my windows are going to blow in at any moment here. Rain, rain all day. Uh, so we will hopefully be able to continue with the broadcast as is. That is certainly the plan. Uh, but there's going to be some there's going to be some technical challenges for some folks in the Eastern Corridor, that's for sure. But let's get right to it. George Floyd. George Floyd's killing by a Minneapolis uh, police officer led to the restart of the BLM, the Black Lives Matter movement, a movement that is intentionally named in such a way that if you do not concede to all of its demands, you are immediately subject to questions about your uh, possible racism and and you are clearly a horrible human being that no one should listen to because how could you disagree with Black Lives Matter? And we get into this game of, no, of course, we all agree Black Lives Matter, but I do not agree, nor should I be forced or pressured to agree with BLM, the movement's list of demands. It's a very straightforward proposition, but there are a lot of people who are quite dishonest about it for obvious reasons. The George Floyd video that we saw showed Officer Derek Chauvin with a knee on the neck of George Floyd for over eight minutes. And he is yelling, I can't breathe. And he's clearly in deep distress. Uh, The officer involved here has already been charged with homicide and could face a, a very lengthy stint in prison perhaps even the rest of his life in prison we have to see what the final charges and the and the and of course what the jury says in all this will be but we saw this and everyone based on the video condemned it and there was still the blm movement that rose up and said there's systemic racist police violence that's the narrative the narrative isn't really that there there is such a thing as a rogue cop, a bad cop, or even a racist cop. It's at the system. This proves that cops are engaged in continuous systemic racism. And so we should all have this national conversation that quickly turned into a national excuse for rioting, looting, violence, arson, attacks on cops, undermining law enforcement and police across the country. Really wasn't much of a conversation, was it? And it's no surprise because it's exactly what happened before. And the left saw this. The Democrat Party saw this as politically useful in the moment. So they wholeheartedly embraced it. Corporate America, which is full of a lot of self-interested cowards, as well as brainwashed left wing ideologues now, completely supported this. No questions asked, sent it money, sent the movement, whatever support they could. And there was a period there for a few weeks where if you said anything about this that wasn't a full bending of the knee, 
you risked losing your job. If you said all lives matter, you could get fired. And people did get fired from their jobs over that. Another statement of what is obviously and clearly true, but the truth is not the point, right? The point is the exploitation of emotions, all in order to have a shift of power from one group to another so that the left can be ascendant, so that the socialist Democrats can have even greater control over your life and over the future of this country. That was really the purpose of all of this. And for people that would say, oh, that's ridiculous, and it's just right-wing talking points, really? What has, what has improved as a result of the BLM movement? What is better now? Nothing. Nothing. Cities are less safe. More people, more black people have died because of this movement. Just look at the data. Look at the statistics. You've got violent crime, rising homicides, which are disproportionately affecting the black community. Homicides rising in 36 of 50 major U.S. cities of the top 50 cities in the country. Chicago is a war zone in some parts of the city, not the whole city. And then on top of this, you have the the piggybacking uh, on on the movement of the Antifa movement, right? You have the Antifa movement, which decides to attach itself to to hop on top of the BLM movement and trying to to do everything that it can to bring down our system or at least make our system as miserable and unlivable as possible in advance of a Joe Biden victory. So that's what we've seen happen for all the marches and the kneeling and the uh, the, the teary-eyed white liberals showing up to scream in the faces of black police officers that they are betraying their race by being law-abiding, law-enforcing good Americans who are protecting our communities. Unbelievable what so many of these white libs were doing at these protests. The racism that they were showing. And yet the uh, the media has has learned no lessons from any of this they still feel so smug and sanctimonious a lot of millionaire anchors on cnn and msnbc who haven't slept the night in a single high crime neighborhood in their entire lives not one night okay let's just be honest about this they're total frauds but we see the the benefits that you get if you're a Democrat, if you're a lib, you know, Nancy Pelosi and an absolutely disconnected, uh, self-righteous, arrogant, multi-multi-millionaire living in a true mansion in San Francisco. I mean, a, a palazzo for Pelosi. And she cares so much about violence in the black community in poor parts of major cities she doesn't doesn't care and i'm going to tell you this right now she doesn't give a damn she pretends she doesn't really care useful for her this is what the democrats do this is the real truth of the matter they use this issue for their own purposes they don't really care they don't do anything they're smart enough to know that all of this is posturing and theatrics they're smart enough to know that this isn't going to make anyone's life better in majority black communities of America or any community in America. But they don't care. They don't care. They're frauds, you see. There's a fraudulence at the heart of the Democrat Party today. That brings me now to the truth of the George Floyd arrest as we see it. Now, let me just first state, it still appears to me, based on the totality of the video evidence, 
that there was excessive force used against George Floyd and the officer involved should be charged. So before anybody, before, you know, media matters can clip this and say, oh, he's saying it still seems to me. And again, I'm just going on the video evidence, which we didn't even have the full context of until now. Right. We only saw a clip of the video. We didn't see the whole thing. But with under the circumstances, you know, the knee on the neck, there should have been greater care taken to make sure that George Floyd was not in lethal distress. That's my opinion. Uh, and, and the officer should be held uh, fully culpable for it. That said, what you see in the almost 10 minutes or so of video leading up to the knee on the neck segment on the pavement in Minneapolis in front of onlookers with two other officers present, what you see is George Floyd acting like a, an EDP, we would call it in the NYPD in New York, an emotionally disturbed person. This guy was completely having a, a panic attack, saying things that made no sense, and shouting constantly that he can't breathe and he's terrified and he can't breathe while he's being gently walked in handcuffs from his own car into the police car, while he's standing outside in open air. He's shouting, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. When no one's doing, and understand this, later on he's saying it when there's a knee on his neck. But the video shows him saying it when there is no pressure on his neck or anywhere else for that matter. Yes, he's handcuffed, but there's no reasonable expectation that that would asphyxiate anybody. So he's yelling he can't breathe. Now, why is that relevant? It's relevant because it shows that the officers involved were courteous, respectful, and professional until they had received substantial resistance. He was resisting arrest. He was refusing to get in a car. He was claiming to be claustrophobic about getting into a car when they had already pulled him out of a car. So they, they, they grab, they, they pull him out. They tell him to step out to be arrested from his vehicle. And then they're trying to put him in a cop car and he starts screaming that he's claustrophobic and that he can't breathe. He has drugs in his system. He had fentanyl in his system. He was high. Now, again, that doesn't change the excessive force component of this, and it doesn't change the lack of care given to Floyd on the ground by the officer who had him in custody. But if we're looking at severity of the charge, then it may factor in when you're looking at a, uh, what, what the defense will be able to tell a jury. It will factor in. Then there's the bigger then there's the bigger issue that this raises, which is that this video in no way shows cops hunting a black man for the purposes of racism out to kill him. That is not what happened. Excessive force is bad in any police situation and cops need to be held accountable for it. And it does happen. I've written about it when it has happened. I thought that cops have committed murder. We all know this. It does happen. Uh, but to say that this incident was just a racist, practically a member of the Klan cop going out and just killing a black man for no reason is not true. Meaning that it wasn't, there is no, uh, there's no reason to believe there were racist origins in the targeting of Floyd or that the officers set out 
in their minds to physically hurt him at all. The video shows them saying, step out of the car, please step out of the car. At one point, an officer pulls his weapon and points it at Floyd because Floyd, who is hysterical, I mean, actually hysterical, just from cops saying, can you step out of the car? He's he's panicking. He's shouting. He's saying, don't shoot me. He's 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 high. The officer pulls his weapon because he keeps saying, keep your hands on the steering wheel. Keep your hands where I can see them. Keep your hands out in full view. And Floyd doesn't comply. So he withdraws his weapon. Put your hands on the steering wheel. Okay. He puts his hands on the steering wheel. The officer immediately holsters his weapon, puts him in handcuffs, walks him, uh, walks him toward the uh, other vehicle, to the, the police vehicle. Why didn't we see this video until now? Why is it that a British tabloid, the Daily Mail, were the ones that got it and posted it? Shouldn't the American public, in a case of this gravity that affected American consciousness and and, and was having a real effect, a very negative one, on cities coast to coast, shouldn't we have seen the full context of the arrest? They had the body camera footage. Why do we have to wait months to see this? Because it does not support the narrative of racist, evil cops. It shows that that cops were challenged with a very difficult situation. A criminal from his past who was high and not complying with lawful orders. And then because he had said so many times, I can't breathe the officer and he should be held accountable for this because it's on him. Right. You've got someone handcuffed. You got your knee on their neck. That's not okay. That's criminal. He killed the man. So again, I'm not saying the officer isn't guilty of excessive force leading to a death here. I'm not saying he shouldn't face charges. I still believe he should. But the narrative of a racist cop just going out to kill a black man for no reason whatsoever other than racism, which is what we were fed. That's what we were told. That's why LeBron James went out and said that black people are, quote, literally being hunted when they leave their homes. That was the LeBron James quote, right? That's just not true. That's not. And no one would watch this. No fair minded person watches this video and says, oh, these cops just want to kill this guy. No, it was the cops were dealing with an emotionally disturbed, uh, under the influence of drugs person having a, a complete panic and did not handle it appropriately. And one officer put pressure on his neck, killed him, led to his death. And is going to be held accountable for it. But there's no there, there's no systemic targeting of black of a black man by his race from the start of this video to, from the start of this video that makes you think that this was a racially motivated killing. And this is what there's going to be a lot of a lot of debate and fighting over right now. It was excessive force dealing with the difficult uh, with the difficult arrest, which is uh, illegal. But that's not what we were told this was in the beginning. We were told this was an execution. We were told that this was just sheer, pure racism. I think that's a much more difficult case to make when you see the way these officers interacted with Floyd, spoke to Floyd, worked with him until he simply refused to get into the cop car after all kinds of asking, cajoling, you know, practically begging the officers, please get in the car, please, we'll roll down, we'll roll down the windows for you. We'll make sure you're okay to... That's what the racist cops say. Please just get in the car. We'll roll down the windows and make sure you're comfortable. And the guy wouldn't get in the car. So then Officer Chauvin puts him on the ground, puts his knee on his neck and kills him.
and kills him. But remember, he's saying, I can't breathe, which is what he had been saying for 10 minutes before when he could breathe. The officer is still responsible, but to me, it looks like involuntary manslaughter. It's certainly not a hate crime murder that was intentional from the start. That's a very big difference. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Is there a double standard from elected officials, from people in positions of power in the BLM era? Well, here's a great example of that double standard from Mayor de Blasio, who now, because he took city time and resources to paint a BLM sign outside of Trump Tower, other groups want to paint Blue Lives Matter signs on the streets, right? The streets are now an open political canvas, aren't they? Oh, but they have to go through a permitting process. Did de Blasio go through a permitting process for his BLM sign? Please uh, play four. We haven't said no to people who said if you want to apply, you can apply, but there's a process. Uh, Look, the fact is that what I decided to do with the Black Lives Matter murals, and this came out of a meeting at Gracie Mansion weeks ago with community leaders and activists who said this would be such an important thing for this city to declare officially. Um, That is something, again, transcends all normal realities because we are in a moment of history where this had to be said and done. That's a decision I made. But the normal process continues for anyone who wants to apply. This really is the lib mentality across the board about BLM. All the rules are out the window if it interferes with the BLM agenda. You know, this is what he says. You know, this this, this normal point in, or this extraordinary point in time is what? what? Says who? That's what I mean. All of a sudden, whether it's the protests or the signs on the streets, normal rules don't apply. Oh, because this is so important. What exactly makes this moment so important? What has changed? What's the big policy directive? What's the the change in law that's going to make us all better? Oh, it's all just right. Nonsense from libs. Nonsense. Self-righteous, virtue signaling nonsense from the Democrat Party. There we go. Oh, and the process is the punishment, of course, with his there's a process to go through. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. President Trump sat down with Axios, which is a another one of these uh, lib news websites. Oh, but they, they provide the great service of of giving you one paragraph and then a talking point, a lib talking point below of what the conclusion is of why this matters. You know, for for the libs who have who find the New York Times front page is taking too long to read. You know, they go they go to Axios, I guess. I don't know. People, some people go to this website. It is started by Politico people. Uh, how many lib websites with all the same opinions, all the same thoughts on the news have to exist? I mean, it's it's pretty amazing when you think about it, isn't it? They're all telling you exactly the same thing. None of them have anything, no unique takes. It's just, are we far left or just sort of far left? Okay, well, I'm so glad that we have those diverse opinions out there for the liberal media. But anyway, we've got the the president weighed in on a number number of issues here. And uh, they're, they're, they're hammering him today. They're picking the parts of the interview where, look, it wasn't it wasn't a particularly strong interview for Trump. I don't know why he sits down with Axios and, you know, at, at this point in time so that they can push him on things 
that I, I don't some of the things I think are are just clearly meant to goad Trump. And everyone knows that if you're in the press and you ask the president a question where he's expected to give a certain answer uh, and and he doesn't want to, he really likes to stick it to the media. and Be like, nah, I'm not going to I'm not going to give the answer that I know I'm supposed to give. I'm not going to say the thing that I know I'm supposed to, to say. So there was some of that, too. But he, he was asked about where we are with COVID and uh, in this Axios interview. And here's what he said, play 17. Even in these states, however, where the virus is under control and at a very low number, Americans should continue to be vigilant, be careful in order to prevent the new hotspots from opening up or any new hotspots from opening up in those states. To that end, I urge all Americans to continue to socially distance, wash your hands, wear a mask when you cannot avoid crowded places, and to protect the elderly. Very, very important. Protect the elderly. So that was actually Trump's press conference, but the same idea. He's talking about what he what he's trying to do, what we're trying to do nationwide against covid. Um, I will return to this issue of how the, the libs really give this sense that they know what would need to be done to make this virus go away. And, and I'm just wondering, when will they tell us? When can we hear? Because if, if their only thing is wear a mask and shut down the economy, that won't work. And that is crazy. So so this 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 make believe world they live in where there is no virus, the virus has hit all over the world. All right. And countries that we had been told have beaten it are having surges right now. So they're still trying to to suppress it. And and it's you know, it's a challenge all over the globe. And if you look on a per capita basis, the U.S. is still in far better shape when it comes to mortality from this than many other comparable major countries. You know, the U.K., Italy, Spain were pretty uh, even with Germany. And anyway, I'll, I'll get back to COVID response in a second. That, that was on me. I I picked out a clip that was not of the Axios interview, but of the Trump press conference yesterday. So let's actually go into uh, producer Mark. I'm assuming well, I know th- this was a question that was asked in the press conference about John Lewis, uh, the president, getting a lot of pushback on this one. Play 16. I don't know John Lewis. Uh, he chose not to come to my uh, uh, inauguration. Uh, he chose. Uh, I, I don't. Uh, I never met John Lewis. Actually, I don't believe. Do you find him impressive? Uh, I can't say one way or the other. I find a lot of people impressive. I find many people not impressive. But no. But I didn't. Do you find his story he impressive? Come, he didn't come to my inauguration. He didn't come to my State of the Union speeches. And that's okay. That's his right. And. Again, nobody has done more right. for but, but black to, Americans than I have. I understand. He should have come. But I think to, he made a big mistake. But, take, but taking come. your relationship with him out of it, do you find his story impressive, what he's done for this country? He was a person that devoted a lot of energy and a lot of heart to civil rights, but there were many others also. There's a petition to rename the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, as the John Lewis Bridge. Would you support that idea? I would, I would have no objection to it if yeah. they'd like to do it. Yeah, that's a good idea. Would have no objection to it whatsoever. Okay. But see, that's not acceptable to the, to the establishment, to live media. He's supposed to genuflect. 
and and go on a long you know there's so many people in the media that they honestly don't know a, a darn thing about the, the legacy of john lewis or really the civil rights movement but they know what they're supposed to say you know he was a giant of the civil rights movement uh, a, a hero and, and look he was a hero of the civil rights movement that's true but trump doesn't like to be in a position where he has to say the thing that everybody has to say in that moment in time uh, you can argue that this is uh, or you, you could certainly take the position this is a little bit childish of the president and uh you know he he shouldn't play into the the journalist's hands on these things but i also the president takes it kind of personally why didn't john lewis show up to the president's inauguration but really he's the president of the united states i I think he's i think he's allowed to be a little annoyed about that i do wish the president was a little more generous about uh, you know, John Lewis as civil rights hero, but John Lewis as congressman is a politician just like any other folks, right? They're, these are different things. This is, the, this is a bit similar to, you know, John McCain, of course, his military service, uh, uh, incredible, wonderful, praiseworthy, honorable, all that. Uh, that's all true. John McCain, the politician, really liked to send other people's children off to fight wars that weren't a particularly good idea and Love to get nice things written about him in the New York Times at the expense of the conservative movement in this country. Okay, like we're allowed to criticize a politician. I'm not criticizing him as a human being. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not uh, being rude about somebody who has passed away. But there, these are different. These are different areas of discussion. But Trump should know that that's not that's a nuance that will not be uh, in any way uh, will will not be accepted at this point in time. You are allowed only one thing. It has to be, according to the media and according to the establishment, you, you have to uh, bow down and, and just speak in the most glowing terms possible about every aspect of anything that John Lewis ever did ever. That's the only thing that, that's the only thing that's allowed. Now, again, I'm somebody who thinks that when someone passes away out of respect for the family, there should there should be a, a little bit of a, a decency in public discourse and just, you know, use your judgment, right? Be a, be a nice human being about things when you can. Um, but the president is getting absolutely hammered. I mean, oh, my gosh, the journalists are all freaking out about this absolutely all day. I- I'm still the, the John Lewis uh, news cycle that we're in right now for me is largely dominated by the blaring and and completely unacceptable double standard for travel to this funeral. Right. You can't have a funeral. You're not allowed. John Lewis is important so he can have multiple funeral services where states will waive the the uh health restrictions in place for those to for people to be able to go because it's all so special it's also because he's important your family is not the state wants you know your family is not important i tell you this right now if i had a family friend or god forbid a member of my family who passed away during this pandemic it's a hell of a lot more important to me than going to a john lewis funeral if i'm somebody who is in the public eye right your actual connection to somebody assuming that i didn't know him i didn't i never met the man your actual connection to a family member i know people say oh my gosh how could you yeah your connection to a family member matters a heck of a lot more than paying your respects to a political figure but the state allows one and not the other why is that well we all know why because they pretend that this is all about health but it's really all about so very much more um and it's really ultimately supposed to just be about making all of this Trump's fault. This is all everything that we see happening across the country. All the bad things going on is Trump's fault. You know, here's uh, here's Bro Cuomo 
He's he's done with his deadlifting for the day, and he wants to lecture the country on what to do about uh, about Trump and how what a terrible guy he is. Play five. Middle of a pandemic, and this president spent the weekend hitting golf balls and bragging about his large MAGA crowd turnouts and coronavirus hot zones. No masks. Big crowd. Pathetic. And the reality is, once again, the key is the we. It's the truth, my brothers and sisters. This man is determined to keep down his golf handicap, not the number of cases that are making us sick. Should we be pushing on Congress? Absolutely. But you know too many on the right are playing the game because they're afraid of him. Keeping his golf handicap down instead of dealing with... Is this... We're, we're really going to do this now? So what's the president supposed to do? We're all, we're all under lockdown. We're all dealing with this misery. Is he not allowed to play golf? It's outdoors. It's zero risk for the people around him. You're socially distanced. What's the problem? I remember when Obama, who played a lot of golf, Obama would get criticized for his golfing during two wars and a war against terrorism that the Obama administration was doing a terrible job of of uh, of winning. Um, and, and there were mass casualty attacks on U.S. soil and, and ISIS and all that. Obama playing a lot of golf and, and the libs would say, oh, it's so it was racist to criticize Obama playing golf. That, that was what some of the journalists would say. It was just it was just more evidence of the racism of the right that it. So are you allowed to play golf or not? You know, are, are, can, we, can we just get can we get one standard? This is the problem with libs. You can never make any headway in an argument with them or even an exchange of ideas. Because what's true one day is not true the next to them. All truth is relative. They just make it up as they go along. It's whatever works in the moment, whatever gets people on their side excited. Makes them feel good. And. Whatever they say to that end is considered acceptable. Um, even something as dumb as he he's keeping his golf handicap down instead of covid cases. What is the president supposed to is the president supposed to give a nationwide lockdown order? I mean, you know, we've got all this focus on testing as if if we have enough testing, we're going to deal with this problem in a way that we wouldn't. Have. We got 800,000 tests a day in this country, I think, is the last number I saw. So we're basically doing a million tests a day all across America, close to it. Are, are we in much better shape because of that? A test is not a cure. A test is not even a treatment. What, what, what do we think for a disease that has a huge uh, asymptomatic spread? How is testing ever? Remember Nancy Pelosi for months. Testing, testing, testing. We just, the president doesn't, doesn't understand, doesn't have enough testing. What? And Trace they've left out now because it turns out that the, uh, the Trace plan that they had at this stage of a pandemic was absurd. You're never going to catch up to all these people anywhere. Not in any one city, not in any one state. This is madness. It was madness from the beginning. But they thought, oh, yeah, that's what we're going to do. Remember, folks, there is a huge ideological divide between people who understand that the government is, not, is incapable in any way of solving certain problems and is inept in, in doing things that it should be able to do. So there are some things that are beyond government's capability to solve, and there are a lot of other things that the government should be able to at least make better, and it actually makes worse. And we're seeing a lot of that with the COVID-19 pandemic. We're seeing a lot of that play out before our eyes right now. And then, of course, all the, all the blame shifting, all the, 
efforts to make this about Trump and about nothing else. Maxine Waters, always, always interesting sound bites from Maxine Waters. Member of Congress, folks, Democrat, member of Congress, Blake Clip 12. And for those people who like him and support him and believe in him, many of them have followed him. Mm-hmm. And in following him, you know, it took all of this time for him to finally come around to saying that masks were important and masks should be worn. And I want to tell you, a lot of people who have not worn those masks uh, because they're, they're, their president didn't wear them and told them that it didn't make any difference are probably dead now. And he's responsible for it. People didn't wear masks because of Trump, she says. And because of that, they died. So they died because of Trump. A lot of people died who were wearing masks all the time. I just want to. So what, what do we think about that? There's a there's a logical fallacy that keeps getting applied here. We have we have no idea whether somebody didn't wear a mask at one point in time because of Trump and got covid and then died or if they were wearing a mask a lot and then. It didn't matter because they still got the virus, which is absolutely not just possible. It's the the evidence points to it as being probable. It is likelier than not that if you're exposed to this virus, the mask will not save you from getting infected. At least based on all the studies that they actually have real studies on this, not theoretical modeling. I'll give you yet another example of it. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Sweden has joined the Netherlands now, yet another country where their top docs, their their health experts have come out to say, hey, um, there's no point, quote, we see no point in wearing masks including on public transportation. And this is as COVID-19 cases are dropping in the country. This is all reported by Fortune magazine and and uh, Newsweek here. As of Sunday, the latest death rate in Sweden uh, per 100,000 people was uh, 56. The figure is lower than that in the UK, 69, Spain, 60, Italy, 58. So that's the that's data that Newsweek put out from Johns Hopkins University. UK has the world's fourth highest death toll overall, while Spain and Italy, which had the sixth highest and eighth highest death tolls, respectively, were formerly Europe's two countries worst hit by the outbreak. Uh, Sweden's latest case fatality ratio portion of deaths compared to total cases was reported to be 7.1 percent. The figure is more than half the percentage in uh, reported in the UK, 15 percent, half of Italy and Belgium, each at about 14 percent and almost half that of France, 13 percent. So Sweden has less per capita deaths. Okay, Sweden has done better against the virus and never locked down. Someone explained a few months ago, we were told, oh, Sweden is experimenting in national sacrifice and it's terrible and everyone's going to die there. No, there there were people got sick. People died just like it's happened everywhere. No lockdown, better outcome than a whole lot of its neighboring countries that did lock down. Someone want to explain that? No, no mandated mask wearing outside. None of this. My friends, I understand. I'm sick of this issue, too. I want all of this to go away. But the, the people who are exploiting this and who are hysterical and don't learn from the past are the ones that are making the decisions now about what's going to happen in the future. The lockdowns are getting worse. 
Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, look, I think the, the federal uh, officials, the White House, Dr. Burks, the secretary, they're sending the exact wrong message. They've learned nothing in six months. Uh, they're saying the same thing they said about the economic reopening. Just do it. Just do it. It will be fine. No, don't just do it. It wasn't fine. We learned that lesson. Uh, do it if you have the virus under control. Uh, do it if you have the safeguards in place. Uh, do it carefully. Let's understand that what Cuomo is really advocating for here is lockdown until Election Day. New York is locked down. Cannot eat inside. Cannot gather in places. You're told to wear masks everywhere. Told to social distance. They're arresting people that are violating these things now. New York is locked down. Other parts of the country are also in various stages of lockdown. Right? I mean, they're not yet at the point where they're able to monitor you inside your house, but I'm not, I'm not sure that they're never going to get there. In terms of your outside life, what you can do outdoors, all kinds of restrictions still. So what are we seeing here? Uh, we have record high cases, and there's plenty of data to point to the case the caseload falling especially icu hospitalization in arizona um in in several other important states right now if you look at it the the icus are getting more freed up in florida more freed up in arizona so it seems to anyone who's looking at this with with objective eyes that the virus is spreading across the country because that's what this virus does and I know that's that seems like a, a tautology. It seems like, well, of course, Buck. But no, there are people who don't seem to don't seem to accept that. They think if only we had more mask wearing, if only we did as we were told, like good little boys and girls, we wouldn't have this problem. It's just not true. It's just not true. Uh, the dictates of people like Cuomo are based in a dishonesty. The dishonesty is that New York did not suffer through the worst of this epidemic of any of any place in the entire country, which it did, and had more people die here per capita than anywhere else really in the world, which we did. So if you're looking at this, what is more likely that New Yorkers somehow learned over the course of months to all change their individual behaviors perfectly so that the virus would really no longer be a threat here or that the virus burned through the population of New York so thoroughly that we now have herd immunity against it. Well, what's more likely? I'm here. I can tell you that people were wearing masks the whole time. People have been social distancing the whole time. So what really happened here? And, and if what Cuomo says is true, if this really is, oh, people, they haven't learned, they haven't listened, they don't wear a mask. I told them to wear a mask. Why didn't I wear a mask? If, if that's... What happened? The moment that we try to go back to our lives, the virus is going to explode in New York again. Right? The moment that we have an actual reopening here, the virus is going to be everywhere. So what are we doing? We all agreed at the beginning of this, or at least we thought we did, that, remember, this was 15 days to slow the spread. We're almost at 150 days to slow the spread. We were told that it was just to get hospital capacity ready. Not a single, you cannot find one case of a person anywhere in the country who was denied care in a hospital in the United States because of lack of resources. Not one time have I seen this. And I'm trust me uh, when, when I say it would have been reported on. 
right? The news would have been all over it. So what is this really? It's all these restrictions to slow the spread. We are just stretching out the spread of this virus and adding maximum economic impact to it and political instability. I'll get into the mail-in ballot issue in, in a few moments, too. This is, this is where we are right now. What is the answer that is offered by the other side? They never tell us. They act like, oh, if only you listen to I'm sitting here saying, OK, what are we going to do? He says, Cuomo says, until the virus is under control, it's in it's under control in New York and New Jersey. I think because it got we went through a mass infect mass infection, which effectively now is mass inoculation. T cell and antibody immunity put together. You got a, a huge reduction in the ability of this thing to spread in New York. That's my belief. And there are plenty of there are plenty of doctors out there who have already said the same thing. Right. I, I there there are some areas where, you know, we were wrong. We didn't see this coming. I, I thought that it was going to dramatically drop down in the summertime the same way that it does with seasonal influenza. That didn't happen. Right. The spread happened all across the Sun Belt over the summer. So what what has happened then? Right. And why is it that we didn't know these things? We haven't understood all along how to stop this. The, the, the reliance on masks, my friends. In the pandemic of 1918, uh, they were also ma- there were masking everywhere. There were, you know, the pro masking groups in different cities and everyone was supposed to mask all the time. Do we really believe that that was an effective tactic? I mean, did millions and millions of people around the world died from the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918. If masking was so effective, it should be if it was a worthwhile tactic on its own to deal with the pandemic. You would say, why doesn't it bring it to a screeching halt in any area where there's a real outbreak? And then I'd say, well, okay, social distancing, of course, that works. If human beings aren't in contact with each other, they can't spread the virus. But you can't run a society that way. And by mixing these things together, masking and social distancing, well, which one is really effective? You will not find any hard science other than theoretical science, right? We think that this is true and a lot of people believe it to be true, but you will not find any hard, hard uh, evidence that masking alone will stop the pandemic from spreading. It might slow it a little bit, maybe by 10 percent, 20 percent, who knows. But you still have a massive pandemic going all over the country. I mean, I just wish we could have an adult conversation about this because we're all sick of it. I'm sick. Of it. I want to talk about it, and we will, of course, other topics, other things. But this is it. They they think. If they can put this all at Trump's feet and have the country locked down and miserable going into the election, we will, you know, the American people will vote for anything that's not Trump in just in in a a desperation act. And the desperation candidate is going to be Joe Biden. That's where it is. It's also why the vice presidential pick, which is supposed to happen any day this week, who knows, they might delay it. I mean, people have been asking me, who do I think it's going to be? I think it's going to be Kamala Harris. That's what I think. I think it's going to be Kamala Harris. Media loves her. Remember, Obama picked Joe Biden. So it's like, and everyone was kind of like, really? Adding his foreign policy credentials to the, to the Obama ticket? Yeah, right. Uh, but, you know, there's, there's really, it, it just comes down to a pretty small circle of people that will really, in the end, make this decision. The media loves Kamala Harris. She... You know, checks a lot of boxes that the Democrats want checked, and that's it. I don't think these other names that are being put out there, Bass out of California, 
uh, uh, Lance Bottoms uh, in Atlanta and Georgia. You know, these are mayors. I think it's very, or at least Bottoms is a mayor. Uh, I, I don't think that that's likely to happen. But this is a more consequential. I, I could be wrong, by the way. Uh, so who knows, right? I mean, the libs are crazy. Who knows what they're going to do? I, I, I do think it's. Oh, oh well, here, maybe, maybe Atlanta Mayor Bottoms is, in fact, higher up in the running because she's willing to just take every opportunity to to trash Trump. So that's that's one way to get in the good graces of the Democrat Party. Play three. What do you think about when President Trump says he personally has done more for black Americans than anyone else? He's delusional. He's a narcissist and he is delusional. The only person that believes that is him. He's done nothing for African-Americans in this country. And to speak that in the same sentence as speaking of John Lewis is almost blasphemous. Okay. So. (sighs) Trump did have the lowest African-American unemployment, I believe, ever measured in this country under his presidency. So to say that he did nothing for the African-American community, I think, is that's clearly not true. If you're going to give presidents credit for things, they're certainly giving them all the blame for COVID now. I think you should get credit for other milestones and things that happen on the on the upside. But this vice presidential pick is more consequential than they usually are, uh, because we all know that Biden, he says he's going to be a one termer. And I think he's going to be even less than a one termer. And it makes I've walked you through this analysis that all lines up. He gets to be a hero. He doesn't have they don't need him there. He has no great leadership skills or qualities that they really want. He's just a placeholder so that they can get those. Swing voters in in the purple states, they need to win to come out and vote Democrat. And then they'll hand it off to somebody who's who's a uh, more of a leftist. Now, Kamala Harris is a transactional liberal. I mean, she's somebody who does what she has to do to work her way up the ladder of power. And so that may keep her from being quite as radical as some of the others out there. But I don't think that that's really the case anymore. You know, the the old Democrat Party had the Hillary Clinton style radicalism. I'm sorry, Hillary Clinton style pragmatism of pay me and, you know, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Right. I mean, it's it's what's best for the Clinton individual brand. And that keeps it from being too socialist, too Marxist, a little too crazy. She was still she was a progressive and a leftist, no question. But, you know, she was a leftist that wanted to get paid. Right. She was a leftist that believed in the power of the dollar. And you look at some, and I think that all leftists at some level do, they want it for themselves and not for others. But, but Hillary was somebody that look, you could buy her off. And so that created some degree of predictability. I think the left today wants to go with somebody that is willing to go, to go scorched earth against the other side. And that's why you see all this analysis now about what happens if a Democrat wins this election And they're saying this increasingly. They're more open about this than they had been in the past. They'll say things like they're going to pack the Supreme Court. They're going to uh, add statehood for D.C. and for Puerto Rico and try to pack the Senate against the Republicans, because those are two places that will be Democrat until kingdom come. I mean, they'll be Democrat strongholds forever. Uh, They're trying to, to do things that will structurally. Oh, amnesty, of course. 
structurally change American politics so that we have a one party. We have one party rule in this country. That is all on the table for the Democrats. And I think the mainstream Democrat Party would go along with that now. They have corporate America in their back pocket. They have the academy, colleges, universities, Hollywood, 95% of the news media. They have all of that to bring to bear. The only thing that stops them from getting their way is that most Americans are like, I don't really want to live in a socialist hellhole where I'm being lectured uh, on, on social justice nonsense all the time. And people are just constantly being micromanaged and, and hectored into oblivion. I mean, just just being we're just going to live in a state of endless nagging if Democrats get their way. I mean, that's really what it is to, to be a modern liberal, to be a leftist today, you know, a, a Democrat who's really committed to the cause. You just want to nag and and undermine and just annoy the crap out of everybody who wants to just live their life, make their own choices and have some basic rights protected and be left the hell alone. That's all they really want. Democrats hate that. That is their kryptonite. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. You all know it's not my name on the ballot. It's Medicare for All, the Green New Deal, fighting against structural racism, really, truly trying to combat poverty in our country with the Boost Act, ending discrimination with the auto insurance industry, and really taking on the corporate bullies. So know all of that right now is on this ballot. Uh, and I can't thank you all uh, enough for being part of this journey with me. I can't wait to show our nation that this is what people want right now. They want real change, and they want it now. Rashida Tlaib saying it. It's all about the the left wing agenda on the ballot. Doesn't really even matter whether it's Biden or anybody else for that matter. The, the Democrat Party has its uh, has its priorities, and this this is the plan. This is the plan. AOC also you know that Congress is certainly on board with this. They're radical. They're leftist. Play clip nine. When you are put into a really high pressure situation. That's when people start to change. That's when they start to shift. That's when they start to hedge back on their values. And that's why you see so much squirming in Washington right now. That's why a lot of things, that's why you aren't seeing the political courage that we need, which is why it's so important that we have folks like Ilhan who are anchoring our Congress around a moral center that is accountable to everyday people and not lobbyists or corporations that are looking to make a buck off of our public good, off of our, our public institutions. And we have so much of that right now, which is why it's so important that we use this and we use this opportunity to organize and to expand our base. AOC said something very important there. And I know I make a lot of jokes about AOC, as do others, but but I mean this. She said something very important that Ilhan Omar and other far left members of the Democrat Congress are 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 now creating a anchoring a moral center of their party. Now, I, I often talk to you about how I view the Democrat Party as largely immoral and chasing uh, what feels good, what is what is uh, useful for the purposes of power and control. For a, men- for a mentality, for an ideology that is largely uh, anti-God, anti-individualism, anti-objective reality. And, and I stand behind all of that. Uh, but, and as I've told you, white liberals 
are actually large that they are the anti-god movement within america there's white liberals who aren't aren't really religious don't really believe in that stuff uh and that disparity between those who believe in god and those who don't between democrats and republicans if it weren't for minorities who are democrats who are more connected to their church and to their religion would be even more apparent but when she says a a moral center of the democrat party understand that she means uh, she means to declare socialism and the different uh, policy dictates of the Democrats as inherently moral, right? That having this, and what this means is that uh, people can make a determination, people in power can make a determination about what can be taken from you by force by the state and that your success or your your individual choice is only is only subject to the whims of the state. There is no natural law. There's no natural right. There's none of that. It's whatever the whatever the government decides your rights are. That's what they are. Right. This is whether you want to talk about cultural Marxism or the economic implications of this. All of that. All of that points in the same direction. So the 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 moral center of the Democrat Party becomes the state in place of God. That's what you have to know. And so there is an essential truth that she is getting at here. That the moral core the Democrats believe in is not that there is objective right and wrong, that there are principles that are true in all cases that should be applied to all moral questions, that, that, that they are universal and eternal. None of that, right? Inalienable rights, all of that is just, that's all just nonsense. That's all just, you know, blap, 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 clap trap. No, what they see is the government in the actual role of determining what is right and what is wrong. The government tells you what you can and cannot do in any sphere that it chooses and determines it on a whim, in real time, based on whoever's in power. This is a huge doorway open for totalitarianism. I'm not saying we're going to become totalitarian tomorrow, but once that mentality is adopted, how far are we from... Even a modern totalitarian state like China. A generation or two, maybe? Thanks for listening to the Bus Sex and Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. The CARE Act, or CARES Act, or whatever they're calling it, the, the rescue bill of the economy is run out. And so now we get to play our, our favorite game. Who wants to play uh, chicken? On the roadway with Nancy Pelosi. With Chardonnay Socialist Nancy. And I'm never going to take my foot off the pedal. I'm coming. I'm coming for you. You better turn off the road or else. Who wants to, who wants to see if Nancy's going to blink first? I don't know. This is, this is what she likes to do. Especially with the, uh, the political temperature as, as high as it can possibly be. And the more suffering and misery that can happen in the meantime, the better. Why is this in any way a, an issue right now when we could just have an extension of the benefits for a week or two while they finish negotiation? No, Nancy wants Americans to feel pain. No, no pain, no gain. Insane in the membrane. Nancy is all about it. And here she is telling everybody that... Uh, it's all, oh, oh, what a surprise. It's all Republicans' fault. Play 11. 
Right now, today, we have an emergency. A building is on fire, and they're deciding how much water they want to have in the bucket. This is very important to stop. Millions, millions of people could have fallen into poverty without the $600. They're so fussy about uh, any anecdotal information they may have about somebody not going to work because they make $600 on this, but so cavalier about big money going to uh, uh, companies that really shouldn't be having. It. So the, the $600 is very important in the lives of the American people. When you want to speculate about stabilization and this or that, if and when, that's for another day. Okay. For right now, we have an emergency. But Nancy wants to hold up the emergency. She doesn't, doesn't, doesn't want to do anything. Uh, we've seen this before. Who was it that was stalling twice? to get a bill passed to get money to the American people. It was Nancy Pelosi and her lunatic Democrats. So we've already seen this. We've already been to this place. Sure enough, now we are having the same argument, the same fight, because the Democrats see political advantage in it. That's that's what's actually happening. That's what's going on right now. And I I think that they walked into a bit of a trap here because, remember, once you turn on $600 a week unemployment, in addition to whatever state unemployment one gets, those are pretty generous benefits. Now, and I saw some messages about this last night I was reading, I understand this is a different situation, right, that the government mandated the shutdown of the economy. People lost jobs. People that I know very well, friends of mine, lost jobs because of government policy. They absolutely should be helped. They have been paying their taxes, paying into these uh, state insurance programs for unemployment for exactly this reason. So I I am not, you know, this is not a, oh, people are just all living fat and happy and not caring. And no, no, not at all. But you can see that at some point, there does have to be some mechanism to incentivize going back to work especially for those whose jobs pay them less than they are currently getting on unemployment. If, if somebody told me, well, I love my jobs. I'm probably a bad example. I would probably do the show if I was getting paid, you know, the same amount to not work anyway. But that's that's the truth. I know that sounds oh, you're all oh, Buck. it is true, though. I probably would do it anyway. Bruce or Mark would be sending us postcards from the beach in Jamaica, but I would still be doing this show. Correct. Yeah. So for most people, though, it's a reasonable thing for them to say, I don't want to I don't want to expose myself to possibly getting this virus. And also, I want uh, I want to get paid even more money. And so they're going to stay home. So what is the big what is the big political fight here? Democrats get to posture as Santa Claus. They love this. Oh, just give people more money. Endless amounts of more money, especially going to election. Republicans are saying we got to get people back to work because these we have lulled ourselves ourselves into a false sense of economic security where the government can can effectively pay bills and the debt bomb that we are running. I mean, we're running up a debt bomb at multiple levels. You know, we're running up a debt bomb at the national level. It's the most prominent one, 25 trillion and counting. Very likely that we're going to be at 30 trillion in just a few years here, maybe sooner. So we're going to be at a 30 trillion dollars of debt soon friends soon that's absolutely mind-blowing and there are of course consequences of this and we've been in an unprecedented era of american financial dominance and 
and prosperity where we're still the, you know, the global reserve currency. Once any of these things starts to shift, though, it's too late to change it back. Right. And, and China, I think, is sensing real weakness on our behalf. There's a lot happening here in the background, a lot of structural pressure going on for our entire economy that no one's paying any attention to right now, or at least is not driving the political conversation. We're focused on who's how quickly and who are we going to get checks to to keep the lights on at home? And that's important. And I'm not saying it's not. But we also need to look at the bigger picture of how long do we really think this is sustainable? How much longer? And what happens when all of a sudden we don't have an expectation the government is going to be writing checks for everybody and we go back to industries where, you know, the restaurant industry in New York, I think over 80 percent of restaurants in New York. And I, this is just one sector, but it's one that I know well uh, from eating a lot of food. Uh, they they didn't pay their full rent during the pandemic and a pretty a pretty large percentage have paid almost no rent. Well, you might say, Buck, the landlords can afford that. Not all of them can. What happens to them? Then the banks are going to have properties that they're going to have to uh, either lease or sell. How is that going to work? Right. How do you there's going to be so much that we're going to have to so much uh, destruction of wealth and so much dislocation of assets. You're going to have to purge all of this. It's going to be a mess. A lot of people that haven't paid their rent in months and months. And and the government, I think, is pretending or at least the government perhaps can't is unwilling to face up to what it really means when they're paying such a large percentage of Americans bills. What happens when they stop? But this is a bit like the normal debt conversation we have where nobody wants to be the one to say, hey, everybody, the party's got to stop now before the party stops forever. Um, no one no one is the one that wants to say that. Trump is at least weighing in to tell everybody, look, he's he's trying to help quarterback from behind the scenes, getting this another round of economic rescue stimulus, whatever you want to call it. Play 14. The fact that I'm not over there with crazy Nancy. No, I'm totally involved. I'm totally involved. And we're going to be doing some things that are very good because we don't think that she would look what Chuck Schumer wants more than anybody. And I would say Nancy Pelosi would be second. They want to bail out cities and states that have done a bad job over a long period of time. Nothing to do with coronavirus or China virus or whatever you want to call it. They want to bail out cities and states. They want bailout money. They want a trillion dollars in bailout money. And a lot of people don't want to do that because we don't think it's right. The Democrats have run some very bad states and some very, very bad cities. And a lot of people don't want to give them a trillion dollars to reward them for doing a bad job. A trillion dollars for state and local governments. A lot of that's supposed to go to Democrat-run cities. And they're going to make all kinds of claims about, well, what debts have they run up now? But were they really run up during the pandemic? Or were these structural issues from before? I mean, just think about it. The, the Democrats want to use this as a massive federal taxpayer-funded giveaway to states and cities that are blue strongholds that have mismanaged their finances and are in some really dire economic straits and they're facing they're, they're going to raise taxes anyway i mean the cities cities are going to have a one-two punch i think pretty soon where and this is true pretty much all major cities i mean and certainly any city over a quarter of a million people 
uh, you're going to have a rush on on uh, taxes, right? People are going to start or people are going to run away from taxes uh, because the services are going to start to go down. Crime is rising. People are going to want to leave cities. And meanwhile, those cities are going to become more desperate. And they're going to say, ah, but wait, we want more of your tax dollars. That's uh, that creates a death spiral for a city. People start to flee. I mean, that, that's the big worry in New York. And the most I mean, the, the the highest earners are also the most mobile economically. That's just the case in our economy. The people with the most money have the greatest option to leave and go wherever they want to leave, to leave a city, to leave a state entirely. And so that's what Democrats are trying to to manage right now. They're trying to leverage the panic that the whole country is going through with this this continuing wave of covid-19 and get enormous payoffs courtesy of the taxpayer for states and cities like New York uh, and Los Angeles and and others that are going to want enormous bailouts. That's what the fight is over. So what are Democrats doing? Holding unemployment payments that people deserve and need, holding those hostage. That's what Democrats do. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Under my administration, African-Americans were doing better than they had ever done in the history of this country. So I did a lot. Job numbers, all of the money. They had money. They were getting great. Their their percentage was, was up. Their housing ownership was up. They did better than they've ever done. I just until don't know we how got hit. And now, you know what we're doing? I'm building it up again. We're going to have it. Next year will be a great year, unless it's screwed up by somebody that doesn't know what he's doing, which could happen, but I don't think it will. He's saying Joe Biden's not going to know how to get the economy up and running. I think that's definitely the case. What do Democrats what do Democrats think is going to make us all wealthier and better off? More government spending. Just just have the government spend more money. Tax people more and spend more money. That's going to somehow make your life better. It's not going to work, but they will never change on this one because spending is also a form of power and control and social engineering. And they know that. So that's going to be the plan. That's what they're going to do. That's why they're so uh, they're they're so invested. Uh, They're so invested in these massively expensive programs like the Green New Deal because this appeals ideologically appeals to them. Oh, the idea that we could spend trillions of dollars with the government in charge of all this. It's like these people have never interacted with anyone who works for the government. The government overwhelmingly doesn't care, is inefficient, is bloated and is bad at what it does because there are no price controls. There are no incentives really in government. And the only accountability you get is from public perception. There's there's no market mechanism, really. It's just what do people think? Is the government doing a good job? Eh. Well, it's what we got. We need it. We got to deal with it. And this is why yet another reason why I'm so concerned about what happens, the future of this country, if the Democrats do, in fact, win. How are they going to win? Well, we know that vote by mail is a very big part of this. Here's what uh, Chuck Schumer has to say about what we're seeing there. Play six. We Democrats believe strongly that we have to have free and fair elections, that the mail must be delivered in a timely way because so many more people are going to vote by mail. So many more polling places need to be set up because of COVID. You can't be close together. There's a long list of things that are needed. And the good news is our Republican colleagues agree with a few of them, but some they don't agree with. 
and we are discussing why we think they need them, and they'll counter with us in the room, Mnuchin and uh, Meadows. Yep. Vote by mail. If they can get vote by mail, they think they can win. They don't care how much cheating there is as long as they win. And if they don't win, they'll claim there was cheating because of vote by mail. It's perfect, folks. It's perfect how all that works, isn't it? Just uh, another thing. I want to throw this in the mix. A note on uh, on TikTok. Yesterday, I talked to you about about TikTok and uh, the president saying it has to be sold by September 15th. This is the Chinese social media app has 800 million users worldwide. I believe 100 million users in the U.S. It's considered the fastest growing social media app of all time. It's uh, supposed to be worth 100 billion dollars. It is highly addictive if you start to use it. I can tell you that. I just watch people cooking and basting steaks all day. Um, is it really an espionage threat? Because people have been asking me this. Is it really an espionage threat? And I say, maybe. How is it a national security threat? I, I view this as, as there, are, there are two levels. There are two levels on this one. Um, oh, and the president weighed in on this during his Axios interview. Play 15. We had a great conversation. Uh, he called me to see whether or not uh, uh, how I felt about it. And I said, look, it can't be controlled for security reasons by China. Too big, too uh, invasive and it can't be and here's the deal uh, I don't mind if uh, whether it's Microsoft or somebody else a big company a secure company very very American company buy it it's probably easier to buy the whole thing than to buy 30% of it because I say how do you do 30% who's going to get the name the name is hot the brand is hot and who's going to get the name how do you do that if it's owned by two different companies so my personal opinion was you're probably better off buying the whole thing rather than buying 30% of it. I think buying 30% is complicated. And uh, I suggested that uh, he can go ahead. He can try. We set a date. I set a date of around September 15th, at which point it's going to be out of business in the United States. But if somebody, and whether it's uh, Microsoft or somebody else buys it, that'll be interesting. So what we have here, and this is a, a short a short version of what could be, I suppose, a much longer conversation. What we have is TikTok, which is owned by uh, ByteDance, which is a Chinese company and therefore has ties to the Chinese Communist Party. Is it an espionage threat? Maybe. Not the same way that Huawei, which has already been banned, would be uh, where there, there are concerns that they can intentionally leave open a backdoor in their software or, or, or in their hardware. Um, the bigger issue is influence operations. And that's much more pernicious because it's much harder to find to pinpoint that and find out. And we've seen what a little bit of Facebook ad buy from some Russian hackers does to U.S. political discourse. Can you imagine with TikTok with the minor the minor changes that they could make to their algorithms, the ways that they could try to influence the political conversation in this country? That's part of it. And then also China bans the U.S. from having Facebook and Google and these mega companies. It gives it won't give access to the uh, to the Chinese market. So why shouldn't we respond in kind? That's a question that I don't see asked nearly enough. This is really as much an economic war as it is anything else. And perhaps now there's a greater understanding, thanks to President Trump, about this as a new digital Cold War that we are in, an online Cold War, if you will, against the Chinese Communist Party. And TikTok is caught up in the middle of that. I hope Microsoft buys it, though, because I like watching those steak videos. 
Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. So what's really going on with the schools, folks? I know a lot of you want to know. And it is a local issue, it's a national issue, and it's a hugely political one. To walk us through what's really happening with whether schools will be open or not and what's going on behind the scenes, we have Inez Felcher with us now. She is a policy analyst at the Independent Women's Forum and knows a lot about education and stuff. Inez, great to have you back. It's great to be here, bud. Okay, let's start with this one. I'm seeing some stuff about Montgomery County, which is right outside of D.C., so it gets a lot of attention in the national media, where private schools are now being told that they can't. And so it was up to public schools to determine that they could open, but now private schools also were being told that they couldn't. Or what happened? What's going on? Yeah, it's, it's kind of a long saga, but I think it's an illustrative one um, about how politicized and ridiculous this conversation has gotten. Right. So um, the the. Maryland public schools are, are doing localized decisions as to whether or not they open. Teachers unions are lobbying to make sure that not only that public schools don't open, but they don't want to lose what they see as um, market share of parents that they seem to feel completely entitled to. And so what's happening is they're trying to close down avenues that parents are, are looking at to actually avoid the disaster of distance learning that most of them experience in the spring. Um, so one option, of course, is to, to look at private schools, which were reopening. Unlike public schools, they don't have a guaranteed source of income, just like any other business. They rely on being open um, to, to be able to keep the lights on so and pay their employees. So a lot of private schools are looking to open. Um, they are taking a lot of precautions in doing so. This is not a sort of blasé uh, reopening. But nevertheless, a lot of private schools are opening when public schools aren't. And, and so it's created this, this lobby effort on behalf of teachers unions to close down all options like learning pods, like um, private schools. Unfortunately, the governor just issued um, about a day ago, the governor just issued a, a um, order that municipalities would not be given the power uh, to arbitrarily close private schools. So um, the governor stepped in and prevented that situation in Montgomery County. But the same thing is happening all across America. Right. So this is what I want to ask. We, it sounds like. Public, public school teachers unions are are trying to get get this to a place where if they can't have your kids to teach, nobody can. That seems to be the, the, the policy design. That's that's exactly what's happening. Um, and, and I think parents are getting really frustrated because it, it is not a negotiation in good faith. So every poll shows that that families and parents are worried about staff safety for example, uh, in a reopening, but they know what teachers and, and at least some teachers and certainly the unions um, and the districts refuse to acknowledge that the, the last few months of distance learning um, prior to the summer break was a total disaster for a lot of families um, and a lot of students. And so that's just not an option. It doesn't seem like a feasible option to a lot of families, but instead of negotiating good, in good faith um, about how to reopen during a pandemic, we find uh, teachers unions making absolutely crazy demands, not just related to um, health and safety, but related to politics, right? So they've demanded that charter schools uh, be closed, that private schools be closed. Uh, they've demanded that the police be defunded, right? These are things that have absolutely nothing to do with whether or not it's safe to open public schools in a pandemic. Uh, and I think it's really frustrating a lot of parents who might otherwise have wanted to work with the unions and with teachers in good faith. And I think we're going to see an earthquake. Uh, I think this is really going to shake up American education for decades to come. 
because the parents are not going to take this lying down and they aren't taking it lying down. What are your expectations for how parents and there are a lot of parents listening to this right now uh, who are trying to figure out how they will adapt? You know, what are the changes that you see coming to the uh, approach that that American parents across the country will take about education and also their views on how they should have their kids educated going forward? I think we're seeing the collision of two separate um, sort of lines of thought here. One is, is, as I said, the total failure of distance learning. So a lot of families are looking to form what was being called pandemic pods. Uh, but prior to this was called micro schooling, where you have a few families, let's say, you know, anywhere from five, 10, 15 students uh, binding together to then hire a teacher or a tutor um, and have those classroom settings just be smaller and more localized. And a lot of times um, in, in the, the COVID situation, these families are, are agreeing to try to limit their social interaction to each other. So they're essentially trying to expand their households out. Um, and, and this is something that actually isn't, it's new for this context, but it's not new. It's been going on in Florida for quite some time because Florida has something called education savings accounts um, where some parents can actually take a portion of the funds that are spent on their child for their education um, and do exactly that with it. So we have micro schools in Florida that are just a few families deciding they have um, they have similar sort of visions for what they want their kids to learn. Um, and then they're combining those scholarships that they're given by the state, those flexible um, accounts that they're given by the state. And then they're hiring the staff almost as if they were a small school, although they are not regulated as a school. They're not like a pub, uh, um, open to the public school. They're sort of a little tiny pod. Um, and I think they can, that can become a really good model uh, for a lot of families now. But um, it'll be open to more families. We, ha- we saw, you know, the Washington Post, New York Times, right, and teachers unions, of course, all pile on this idea saying it's, it's terrible for, quote, equity, right, because not everybody can afford to do this. Um, well, first of all, there, there are families of limited means who have been doing this on their own for, for years, so tell them that. But, but um, it's true that it would be more equitable if we actually passed it, universal education savings accounts and allowed kids um, to every kid to have that dollar amount attached to his name actually go to the family uh, to address this challenging time rather than to go straight to a district school where teachers unions feel entitled to their money but don't feel you know obligated to actually provide an education. That's what we're seeing right now, and, and I, I think parents are fed up and right to be. And just on, on the point about uh, the failures of, of distance learning, uh, virtual teaching, whatever it is that we're calling it now, uh, it, I've even heard a lot of Democrats just in passing be like, well, yeah, it was kind of a debacle. W- why? How? What were the failures like? Well, first of all, you know, there are some inherent limitations, obviously, for young kids um, learning on, on from Zoom or learning on a computer uh, with a lot of screen time is not the ideal situation. Um, but there are virtual charter schools who have that have perfected this over a decade or more and have have learned how to deliver uh, education online. But that's that's not what this was. Right. Um, so for starters, the, only the, the minority of schools were actually offering um, live instruction online. The rest of them had some combination of worksheets or like digital platform check ins, often like multiplying platforms, which is just really frustrating for families. Um, and then we saw some complete abandonment of the instruction purpose of schooling. Uh, so, for example, in Chicago, uh, almost half of the teachers didn't even log on to the learning platform uh, at least three times a week 
for for the duration of distance learning, meaning those kids just essentially went without instruction. They went without education. They just basically gave up on actually delivering education. And that's the experience that families had um, in the spring, which is why continuing that distance learning or that farce of distance learning seems like such uh, an impossible ask for many families, especially um, you know single moms who who have to work. Um, there, there there is a real crunch time. Um, real life, you know, consequence to this that that the unions are just not recognizing, and they're just calling everybody um, who who brings it up as a concern. They're saying, "Oh, you want people to die? You know, you want like they they threw a bunch of body bags in front of the district office um, in D.C. as part of the protest." And indeed, D.C. the district went from a partial reopen several times a week to fully online this uh, fall because of the protests of teachers unions. But I, I think they're overplaying their hands. Inez Felcher, everybody, the Independent Women's Forum. Inez, always great to have you on. Talk soon. It's great to be here, Buck. Thanks. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. And back by popular demand, the one and only, our, our favorite intellectual anarchist, the man himself, Michael Malice, is in the mix. He is the host of Your Welcome with Michael Malice, also Author of books including The New Right and Dear Reader, an unauthorized biography of Kim Jong-il. What's up, my man? How you doing? I am doing great here. Greetings from Brooklyn. Nice, man. So what's happening in America right now, Malice? I just want to I want to just just toss the ball to you. Tell us what's going on. I think we're seeing the increasing Cold War between the right, broadly speaking, or even just the left and the anti-left. And I think a lot of organizations that have been in power for a very long time are doubling down on their attempts to stay in this power, which they perceive to be, not entirely correctly, a function of the upcoming presidential election. So you view this then, I I would guess, as uh, only likely to get worse and intensify, which I suppose is is, uh, the expectation that we all have. But are you surprised at all at the... Uh, at the hypocrisy and the ferocity of the way the left has embraced uh, this, whether it's the BLM movement, Antifa, all these things together, while putting forward Joe Biden as their candidate? Make sense of that for us. I don't think it's hypocritical at all. I think uh, how it works and progressivism for over a century has been based on the concept, and they would call it scientific, uh, envisioning a conclusion and then, you know, messing around with the inputs to force the output that you find desirable, uh, whether it's through bureaucrats or whether it's through ideologues. So, you know, for them to take any organization or movement and bring it under their rubric uh, is par for the course. I mean, the, progressivism got it, you know, got its start in the 1890s by being virulently homophobic. There were thriving gay cultures in New York City and other places, but they won't talk about that now. Now. You know, they love gay rights. So any weapon that they will have at their disposal, they will use to further and maintain their control of cultural dominance. But uh, I think things are, and here's a great example. Uh, I think things are going badly for them. The New York Times uh, is engaged in a very public uh, assault on our history and trying to redefine America with the 1619 Project as a function of slavery. And if you define America as foundationally based on slavery, uh, then a lot of other things follow suit, like dominoes, logically speaking. 
And now they've had to push back. The woman who runs it, uh, Ida Wells, she said, oh, we're not saying this is the history. We're just saying this is a history. You wouldn't be happy to make that clarification publicly if people, including many leftist historians, weren't calling you out on your nonsense. So I think they're overplaying their hand. And I think just like any jihadis, they're going for the moderates first, but they don't have the capacity, thank God, to actually execute people. So that is going to drive people uh, in opposition to them, if not necessarily toward Trump, who is almost secondary in this longer battle. What do you make of the the calm with which I think a lot of people, I mean, now we're speaking about hundreds of millions of people, but the, the way that rights have been uh, chipped away at during the pandemic uh, where now they will just on a whim. I mean, you know, New York is probably the best example of this. Although I know there are others. They'll say, well, you can eat food, but you can only eat it at, you know, at a restaurant outside and you can't order drinks alone. You have to order food with your drinks and you can't order a drink before your food. And, you know, I, I've, I've been joking around with people saying, at what point do they start putting an egg timer on the table outside that you're allowed to eat in? And if you don't, they're going to arrest you. I mean, it seems to me like we're a country that thinks of itself as, uh, as, a, as a big collection of individuals who care about their rights and freedoms and a democracy and the Constitution. And when the governor jumps, we all say how high. It's a little disappointing. H.L. Uh, uh, Mencken, the great uh, cynic of times past, said the average man does not want to be free. He simply wants to be safe. I'm not surprised at this because if you go back a generation, look at the Patriot Act. The Patriot Act allowed the government to basically infringe on our rights in myriad ways. Uh, Edward Snowden revealed that pretty much all our phone calls are being recorded as a matter of course by the state. And conservatives and Democrats, you know, both have members of their movements who ostensibly are for privacy rights, blithely every year renew these things without even a mention of this being a huge atrocity in terms of rights and in terms of the Constitution, the Founding Fathers. So uh, it's a lot easier to put over ideas when there is a legitimate crisis when people are sincerely dying. But in terms of broader issues, I see very little pushback among Americans, despite how we're perceived and told that we are, when it comes to infringements on our freedoms. Um, and it is, uh, it's just, it is what it is, I guess I could say. I'm not surprised. That's a, the president said that about the pandemic on that Axios interview and certainly got a lot yeah. of... Uh, a, a, Twice. Yeah, yeah, a lot, a lot of heat. I think and we're speaking to Michael Malice, author of uh, Dear Reader, the unauthorized biography of Kim Jong Il, and also The New Right, a book that uh, I have here on my on my bookshelf. Um, my, Michael, you know, there seems to be a very consistent chorus from the anti-Trump, not just left, anti-Trump everything. If only, and then there's kind of a pause. We'd be so much better off. All of this is Trump's fault. I never really understand what they're... It's never clear. I shouldn't say I don't understand. It's never clear. If only what? What is it that you think the claim really is? If Trump, if Trump hadn't done the following, we wouldn't be in this circumstance? It seems like the data does not support the idea that the American experience with COVID-19 is uniquely bad, especially when you look at our general health as a population, which I know no one wants to talk about, diabetes and heart disease are the two biggest mortality risks other than age that people have for this. And America is in a class by itself in those areas. But what are we supposed to have done differently, according to the left, as, as you see it, other than just not have Trump be president? Uh, I think what they are reacting to is a population 
and a nation that does not regard them as worthy of praise and does not waste time engaging in conversation with their stupid opinions. And when you have, uh, this is unprecedented. Uh, you had George W. Bush, Romney, McCain, they all felt comfortable engaging with and having discussions on the left's terms. President Trump is saying, no, we're not having this conversation. You guys are an abomination. And, and, and you know, he often refers to the fake news as the enemy of the people. He said this yesterday. I have a similar expression. So this causes them enormous existential grief because if you are a moral busybody who's focus in life is domination and controlling people's lives, controlling their money, controlling how they live. And you have an establishment in the White House that is not even going to give you the time of day. This will cause you enormous psychological distress. Um, and I think that is what they are, if not explicitly referring to, emotionally responding to. Isn't it fair to say, I mean, the some of these uh, signals that we've seen, especially from the more antifa uh full protests that have happened what do you as somebody who's an actual anarchist michael what do you make of these these people in portland who say they're antifa and then they run up to black cops and scream in their faces and spit at them and say that they're race traitors and all this what does any of this have to do with actual anarchism well i mean they're referring back to the original anarchism in the late 19th century which was very much based on anti-police which reviewed the police as a function of capitalist control uh, there's a monument in a cemetery in Chicago to the Haymarket right. uh, martyrs. These were seven men who were killed um, simply for their political views when a police officer was killed by a bomb, even though several of them weren't even present at the location. So this goes back a long way. Um, however, it's just fascinating to see how, if you watch the corporate press, these people apparently don't exist. I'm sure you probably saw the video where uh, Gerald Nadler um, from the House chairman was asked about, you know, Antifa violence. And he's just said it's a myth that this doesn't doesn't exist. So, you know, the New York Times will put on page a one above the fold an article about some kid who watched Ben Shapiro videos. And then as a result of YouTube, started watching more nefarious videos and then kind of revert to the mean. But when you have people engaged in and movements engaged in wholesale violence and wholesale disrespect towards the police, uh, they simply act as if they don't exist. Michael Malice, everybody, author of The New Right. Check it out. Also, go watch You're Welcome with Michael Malice. And maybe he'll have me back on his show at some point. We'll have a longer conversation. Mr. Malice, good to see you. Thanks, Buck. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ain't no party like a Team Buck party, because a Team Buck party don't stop. Yeah, we got Buck turned up to 11. It's time for Roll Call. Roll call time, everybody. Hey, producer Mark, um, just saw this one. In case you ever get uh, you ever get tired of the Buck Sexton show, there's a new job opportunity. Huawei, the banned Chinese company, is seeking a director of government relations in Washington, D.C. to develop and maintain effective relationships with federal government officials. <laughs> oh, perfect. Uh, I'll send my resume in immediately. Yeah, you want to be that yeah. guy? He was like, hey, guys, come on. So the Chinese company wants to help destroy America and, you know, take over the future of the world. We can make some money here, folks, you know. It's one way to go. It probably would pay pretty well.
that's not a that's not a job that I think anybody would. It's it's a little bit like uh, being a a big tobacco lobbyist. After all the lies from big tobacco have come out, and people are like, "Oh, so you guys really were suppressing the science about how this kills people?" So yeah, you, you don't want to you don't want that gig. That's a tough one. You ever smoked a cigarette, producer Mark? No, I don't uh, enjoy killing myself. Yeah, I've I do that with food. I have never smoked a cigarette in my life. I got to tell you, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. If I'm going to have a vice, it's going to taste delicious and preferably have either an excess of sugar or or uh, or cheese or something like that. Yeah, I, I never got the allure of, of smoking a cigarette. Cheese and sugar are, are the things yeah. that really get me. Cheese and chocolate. Yep. Yep, yep. Oh, man, I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. All right, let's get to roll call. Remember to go to bucksexton.com. Also, we're doing buck briefs these days. you got to check them out. Uh, you can... Do so on Facebook or on Instagram. If you're not following me on Instagram, what's going on? Buck Sexton on Instagram. You should be checking it out. We're posting show content there now. We are using that platform. Not going to be doing TikTok yet. That's for sure. Well, if TikTok gets bought, will you agree to do some dances for the TikTok audience? If TikTok gets bought by an all-American company with Microsoft, then, uh, you know, I I might do some Buck shuffle dances and show people how we get down. Show everybody my funky moves. You can do the dances and put, like, little captions about America. Oh, you know, yeah. Your opinions sure. on stuff. I'll huh. do a dance for American freedom, baby. Woo! That's the plan. All right. Um, Mike kicks us off here. Hi, Buck. The rules are demonstrably, presumptuously, and unapologetically different for our federal, congressional, and bureaucratic royals these most recent decades. They glare with indignation and quickly dismiss any commoner's public challenge to their privilege. Oddly, Americans must have some odd fascination with them, voting them back in every two years. Castle Doctrine, shields high. Uh, Yeah, Mike, the political class in this country loves to exempt themselves and expects different treatment from what the rest of us have. I I think that's really an irrefutable point at at this stage. Uh, and, and, you know, that's if you go back to the origins of English common law and you even go back to Magna Carta and 1215 signed on the fields of Runnymede. Uh, if you go back to Magna Carta, the, the, the big evolution in, in Western uh, Western civilization and, jur- and jurisprudence specifically was there got to be rules that everyone everyone is held accountable to and that you, you can't break. There, there got to be rules, real rules that we can all understand that are clear and that are applicable to everyone. If there is anybody for whom there are no rules whatsoever, then we got a problem. And there, if there's a whole class of people for, her, for whom there are no rules, we got really big problems. So I, I do insist on continuing to point out the ways in which our current legal system and just the application of laws and regulations is inconsistent based upon political expediency. I, I got a big problem with that. Very, very big problem with that. Um. Ona. Hi, Buck. I live in Redding, California. We are the true Northern California. My grandsons are eight and ten. My daughter just told me they'll be going back to school, usually the middle of August. Masks worn only to and from the classroom, not in the classroom. The children will only be with each other. Lunch eaten in the classroom. Recess only with their classmates. We're thankful for this concession. There is a petition I signed to recall Gavin Newsom. Whatever the reason he's opening the schools, we'll take it. My heart goes out to you for being locked down still. Our law enforcement in Reading is more relaxed, for which we are grateful. Thank you for what you continue to do. Thanks for being our voice. Blessings and shields high. 
Well, I want to thank you so much for your kind note and for letting us know what's going on with schools in California. The, the school opening issue is is going to just get even more contentious. And I, I want to just ask the people that think that lockdown is what is the, what what is the end game here? When do we stop doing this? When the virus is under control, if that is the standard, then let's all be and we believe everything else they say about mask wearing and social distancing and all this stuff. The moment that we go back to living our lives, the virus will not be under control. So what are we doing? Oh, it is lockdown until vaccine. They just won't tell us that. Oh, no, I'm sorry. It's locked down until election. That's what we're all going through. They are stealing a year of Americans' lives from them. That is what the government is currently doing. That's what is happening. And the public health experts who have been wildly unimpressive this whole time. What have they known? What have they told you that you didn't know from the first week of this? Wash your hands, wear a mask, social distance. We all know that from just dealing with colds and flu in our normal lives, that those are things that we we do. Do they work? Eh, I don't know. We all get colds and flu anyway. But we try. What is the the great uh, public health policy I'm speaking about? Innovation here? What have they come up with to test and trace? Yeah, that's been a disaster. But, you know, people want to believe. They want to believe that the experts can save them all and that if only we had listened more, if only we were more obedient little serfs in this country, we wouldn't all be subject to this disease still. It's it's nonsense, but that's what they think. Eric, hey, Buck, it's been a while, but I have two questions. Who is the Snow Princess, and how do we outlaw strawberry ice cream? On a side note for Producer Mark, Cinnamon Life is the best. Producer Mark, what say you to this Cinnamon Life claim? Yes, yeah, Cinnamon Life cereal is yes. the best. Absolutely. That is my favorite cereal. Everyone, my wife thinks I'm nuts, and a lot of people think I'm nuts, but it is. Hey, look, you know, I I, I think cinnamon is a great and underutilized spice. So, and I told you, I love cinnamon oh. toast crunch. Man. Cinnamon French toast. Oh, my favorite thing. Ooh, it's really, really good. So, um, and at, Snow Princess is uh, my girlfriend, and that's that's where we leave that. And then how do we outlaw strawberry ice cream? Um, I don't know. Good question. We got to speak to our local representatives about that. You know, I found something out. I was very, very startled when I was told this. You know, who really likes my, my really likes strawberry ice cream and had some had some on hand pretty much at all times. My own wonderful parents, two great, fantastic, patriotic Americans. They like strawberry ice cream. So I don't know. At least we know strawberry ice cream. Liking or not liking is not a genetic thing, you know. It just it can skip a generation. They like it, producer Mark. I'm. What can I say? I know we brought it up. They they can have one flaw. Yeah, I know. they're loud. No perfect. They like strawberry ice cream. It's okay. They like strawberry ice cream. You can never show up places on time. You know, everyone has their flaws. Yeah, exactly. No one's perfect. No one's perfect. Zach, hey Buck. First off, producer Mark is the best. But don't worry, runner up ain't bad. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. I completely agree with your longstanding correct opinion on not bestowing titles to public officials after they leave the office. It perpetuates the faux royalty that public service has become. Pro tip to support your exception on retired military keeping their rank. When you are placed on inactive roles retired, you are still technically in the military for the rest of your life, subject to UCMJ and with the potential to be recalled to active duty if needed. Hmm, Zach, 
Very, very interesting. Very uh, uh, worthwhile addition to our, our thought process here on the keeping up of the titles. So, yes, yes, indeed. You're still subject to being called up to duty if need be. Um, yeah, and I, I just also, I, I think that there's a special, a special honorific for serving in the government is different than, uh, so far, serving the military is different than, you know, yeah, I was the ambassador to, I was the ambassador to Kosovo for a year. And we all have to be like, oh, Mr. Ambassador. And look, I'm just going to say it because I saw today there was a, uh, an interview on Fox News with Dr. Jill Biden. Her name is Jill Biden. Okay. She's a doctor of education, which is not a doctor. She has a PhD in education. I don't, I'm sorry. I know people get the PhDs in the audience can get mad at me. That's fine. But you are, you know, Joe Blow or Jane Blow PhD. I do not think that everyone has to run around calling you doctor all the time. I mean, do we have to call people who have an honorary doctorate doctor? No, I think doctor is for MD, medical doctor. Boom. Dropping some dropping some truth bombs. So there there we have it. I mean, I don't, I don't it's like a lawyer who insists on always being called or always writing, you know, Esquire at the end. It's like, come on. Come on. Really? Oh, but some people do. You'd be surprised. Hunter. Hey, Buck. My name is Hunter and I am 13. I am from Spokane, Washington. I love listening to the program. You are extraordinarily talented, extraordinarily talented in what you do. Your Alex Jones impression cracks me up every time. Keep it up, Buck. And producer Mark, Shields High. Well, Hunter, look, I got I to tell you something right now. You got to stop listening to Buck Sexton because he is part of the Illuminati. He is a deep state plot with a CIA to take over the government. He's going he's gonna to do things to amphibians that will blow your mind. Part of an alien plot to also use the plot with the king of England, who's not even a person, and all the Illuminati and the Bilderbergs come together and there you go. Google it. Read it. Check it out. It's true. Stop listening to Buck Sex. Telling you too much. Too much stuff's not true. Also, that guy's hair can't be real. Can't be real, I tell you right now. I've, I've seen it. I've, I've seen the schematics. It's TS, TS cleared only. Buck Sex's hair is fake. It's part of a government plot. So there you go, Hunter. Thanks for listening, my man. Appreciate it. Alex, hey, Buck, I've been enjoying your show every day since this pandemic started. Needed somebody to actually tell the news you've been doing great. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Alex. You were talking about mail-in ballots a little on Thursday or Friday, and I saw a meme that applies. It basically says, imagine you won the Powerball. Would you send it in the mail or go yourself to turn it in? Same situation for mail-in ballots. Thanks again. Alex, I I would not trust the mail to get it done. That's for sure. Mail-in ballots are going to be fraught with problems and challenges and shortcomings oh my thank you very much for writing in i appreciate it shield's high you're in the freedom hut this is the buck sexton show podcast all right more roll call here we have nanette in the mix and uh you know we're just trying to trying to get the show on with isais uh, bearing down on us here with terrible winds and rain and lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. It's crazy here right now. I hope there's not a tornado ripping through Manhattan anytime soon. It looks pretty dark out there. All right. We have... Um, what's up here? We have Nanette. Buck, I love the Fouch and Cuomo. As an Indiana girl who spent a few weeks every summer fishing in Minnesota, got to tell you, too much Minnesota in your Gretchen Wilson 
Michigander. Um, well, what does the Fouch think about this? The Fouch wants you to know that if you mitigate the Michigander or the, mitigate the Minnesota in your Michigander, the data will tell you that you're less Michigan and more Minnesota. That's what it'll tell you. But what does Cuomo say? Cuomo wants you to know that Michigan is not Minnesota. How do we know Michigan is not Minnesota? Minnesota on a map looks a little bit like a glove or perhaps a mitten. What is a mitten? A mitten is what you put on your kid when you want them to look like a little kid because a glove is too adult looking. Why is a glove too adult? Because they're little fingers all stay together in the mitten where it is warm. Unlike a glove where there are fingers separate, which could, in fact, result in less insulation. What do I mean by insulation? All right, you get the idea. I, I don't know. Producer Mark, can you tell the difference between a Michigander and a Minnesota accent? Because I'm, I'm just a yuppie from NYC, man. I can't tell the difference at all. No, it's just like t- telling the difference between New York, New Jersey, Long Island, and all the same. Yeah. New York and New Jersey, they definitely think, they definitely think that um, they have very different accents, but I, I don't think that the, uh, the the tonal variations really are all that all that different at all. John Shields High, real news fan. I recently attempted to engage in a discussion about how America is divided. My point was that the Democrats, the media have been dividing us for decades. Al Gore in Florida and Trump the last four years are pretty obvious examples. The other guys seem to get upset at this, claiming that both sides are responsible for dividing the country or that it's Trump doing this, but he didn't openly say that. Just wanted your thoughts. Conley Bear lives. Uh, John, yeah, libs are always going to think that Trump is the one who is responsible for dividing the country. No one else has ever divided the country before Trump. He's the worst. It's all Trump. Yada, yada, all that stuff. And you're never going to convince them otherwise. So just understand that liberals have convinced themselves of certain things about Trump that are not they are impervious to uh, additional facts or reality. So you're not going to win that argument, man. But I appreciate you staying in the fight. And I have been thinking more about that little furry commie bear character from the earlier iteration of the Buck Sexton show. And I'm starting to think maybe he needs to make a return, but it'll be a triumphant one. Tony, at least one listener listens to all five hours of programs you do a day. Wow, Tony, that is really uh, that is really humbling and very kind of you. I listen to WOR live, and I and uh, I and my newly listening wife listen to your national show later. Thank you for all your hard work; it is appreciated. Well, Tony, you're in the five hour you're in the five hours of Buck Club, my man. Five five hour Buck. That's uh, that's a special place. I don't even know if I have any relatives in the five hour Buck Club, so. Thank you so much for that, and, and it's really meaningful. Yeah, guys, I do a show in New York City as well on WOR Radio. So um, there you have it. Thought. Oh, this is Tony's got more. It is the devil's greatest achievement that he convinced the world the devil does not exist. It is the Democrats' greatest achievement they convinced people of color the Democrats care about them. Best to you, the Snow Princess, and Tallulah, as well as producer Mark. But you are number one. Well, thank you, especially since that other person said producer Mark is number one. Gonna give, gonna give him a big head. Although I'm the one, you know, Mark. I actually got a special size baseball cap that fits. I found a wow. special site that makes hats for huge headed people. They they make hats for horses now, apparently, hmm. and it does fit. I have a baseball hat that fits. Is it just a generic baseball hat, or what's on the hat? 
Yeah, it's like a, just a generic cap for giant-headed people okay. like me. So it fits, though. I mean, maybe I'll let me take a photo and make fun of myself. I said, look, I finally have a hat that fits. Look at that. You gotta, I had to special order it, though. What's your head size? Like, uh, uh, it was, this, was the, this was the equivalent of, like, double XL. Okay. Well, because, like, I, the fitted hat sizes go to, like, 7, 8, you know. No, no, it's beyond that, man. So it's like 12. On the 10-point oh. scale, I'm an 11. That's the show today, everybody. Stay safe. Stay dry. Shields high.